Welcome to Blue Hour, a podcast for seekers and thinkers, creatives and dreamers. Here we'll be exploring the convergence of shadow and light, the mysteries of life, and the musings of the soul through psychology, art, and spirituality. I'm your host, Adina Arden Cooper. Please join me on this magical journey as we expand our consciousness and infuse our lives with more wonder, love, and fulfillment. Hello and welcome to the final episode of season one of Blue Hour, wherein we will wrap up our exploration of personal origin stories. So far, we've been focused on external influences. Today, we're going to get a bit more personal by reflecting on things that are unique to us as individuals, specifically our names and physical bodies. When I was a young teen, a friend and I came up with alternative names for ourselves. We both have somewhat uncommon names. We were both shy and awkward and didn't feel like we fit in well with our peers, which of course is torture at that age. So in an effort to feel a stronger sense of belonging, we renamed ourselves. We never used these names with anyone but each other, but simply having a sort of alter ego helped us both cope with the discomfort of being different. I see it now also as an act of rebellion and individuation. Of course, we were named by our parents, so it felt like our names represented them, not us. We were at a phase of rejecting parental influence. We wanted to be our own people. We both had immigrant parents. Her mom was from Puerto Rico. My dad was from Israel. And our given names reflected our cultural heritage. Yet, we were both cut off from that heritage due to estranged and complicated relationships with those specific parents. Sadly, we both felt disconnected from the cultures our names associated us with. So, we both chose common, conventional American names. Mine was Nicole, which is laughable to me now. I'm definitely not a Nicole. Adina suits me quite well, actually, although it took me a long time to admit that. My sister's name is Jennifer, which I believe is the number one most popular girl name of my generation. As kids in the 80s, it was common to have things with your name on it. Combs, barrettes, keychains, bags. And my sister never had any trouble finding these things. I, on the other hand, could only have my name on something if it was custom-made, which of course didn't happen. If you've listened to previous episodes of this podcast, you may have picked up on a theme of my personal origin story, which is being weird and different. My name was like the wrapper for the weirdo package that was me. My name means gentle or delicate in Hebrew. For years, I found this insulting. I felt my name implied weakness or fragility when I wanted to be strong and powerful. But the truth is, I'm a petite, nurturing, rather quiet woman, and my name suits me. Now I see it as beautifully feminine, 
And I see femininity as strong and powerful. Those things are not separate. I also appreciate that I don't have the same name as a bunch of other people. I've met or known other Adinas, but it's a rare and special encounter, and I like that. How connected do you feel to your name? What does your name say about you? How would you be different if you had a different name? This is something to consider as you consider your identity formation and personal origin story. In addition to having a more common name, my sister also has blonde hair and a fairer complexion than me. Her name and her physical appearance match, and so do mine. But it's fascinating to consider how either of us might be different if we had either different names or different physical appearances. If she were Jennifer with a dark complexion, say, or if I were a blonde, blue-eyed Adina. Most young children don't think about their bodies too much, not unless someone or something gives them a reason to. And I'll uh, note here that if you suffered any kind of abuse or harm to your body as a child, please seek support with exploring how that affected you and how you perceive yourself in the world. This level of trauma benefits best by individual professional support and, of course, goes beyond the scope of this podcast. That being said, generally speaking, as young adult, young kids, excuse me, we don't dwell too much on our bodies. We simply experience them in the moment without too much consideration for what our bodies can or cannot do or what they look like. Then a time comes when we start comparing. We start to notice who's fastest or most agile, who's prettiest or cutest. Those kids tend to get a lot of attention and praise, even though they didn't necessarily do anything to accomplish those things. They were just born lucky. But we don't understand that when we're kids. We simply observe what's happening and internalize some sense of either inferiority or superiority, depending on our personal experience. In The Undervalued Self, a book by Elaine Aaron, She talks about how hierarchies affect self-esteem. She explains that when relating to others, we're either ranking ourselves against them or connecting with them. She emphasizes the importance of finding commonality and making connections over judging or making comparisons. When we're connecting, we're feeling seen and empowered, which contributes to a positive sense of self. When we're judging and comparing, we're feeling different or inadequate, which can lead to negative identity and isolation. Since the first thing we often encounter in another person is their physical appearance, we tend to make quick judgments or comparisons about that. If you're someone who struggled with self-esteem, I highly recommend this book. How comfortable are you in your own skin? How at home do you feel in your body? Society and culture have a huge impact on this for all of us. Most females struggle with feeling insecure or inadequate in this image-obsessed culture that objectifies female bodies, which isn't to say boys don't suffer from it too, but let's face it, there's a lot more pressure on girls and women to meet cultural standards of physical attractiveness. 
It's impossible for people of color to not be impacted by white supremacist standards, which both degrades and fetishizes non-white bodies. Our culture also has little empathy or understanding of differently abled, heavy set, and non-binary or transgender bodies, which contributes to deep insecurity in those bodies. For some people, the fear isn't simply about not meeting a cultural standard. It's about overt rejection or actual physical threat. Being in a non-conforming body means being at greater risk of physical attack or harm. Safety in the body is paramount. If you don't have it, you're likely to constantly experience elevated anxiety. Comfort in the body is essential for a healthy sense of self, and if you lack that, you're likely to struggle with depression and or low self-esteem. How connected someone is to cultural messages that celebrate their particular body type makes a huge difference. If you don't have any healthy representation or positive messages to support you, you're likely to struggle with some level of self-rejection. You may already be quite aware of how society has affected your body image, but have you considered how this has impacted your origin story? How certain beliefs that formed early on about your body contribute to the story you tell yourself about yourself? When did you first have some sense of what you look like? Or how your appearance affected how people treated you. I was about four years old when my teenage babysitter brought me to a youth disco in a neighborhood church basement. We walked in and almost immediately the DJ commented through the mic on my cuteness. It was so mortifying at the time that I remember it clearly to this day. I was shy and embarrassed by the attention, but I remember that as the first time someone gave me attention or praise for how I looked, I had no idea how to feel. Even as a small child, I felt strange in my body. I'd look in the mirror and it would feel like I was looking at a stranger. I'd have this odd dissociative sensation and I'd wonder, what's happening? Who is that person? Is she me? Sometimes this still happens when I look in the mirror. I often feel eerily separate from my body. A physical disconnect was also amplified over the years by people frequently asking me about my ethnicity. What are you? People will ask, which is caused me to feel othered and weird. I could never understand why this information was necessary. Why do you need to know? Aren't we all human anyway? It may be an innocent question asked by someone who's genuinely curious or seeking connection, but at times when I felt disconnected from my body or my heritage, it left me feeling self-conscious. If you know what I look like, you might be thinking, what the heck, she doesn't look ethnically ambiguous. Or maybe you're thinking, hmm, I've wondered about her heritage myself. Seems I get both sides of that. 
People's responses to us mirror something back to us. The confusion and questioning about my ethnicity mirrored a lot of confusion and questioning that was going on inside of me. For many years, my body was my enemy. I hated it. In part because I didn't like the way that it looked, and in part because of how it feels. Our bodies carry trauma. I feel my emotions intensely in my body, which often leaves me anxious, ill, drained, or exhausted. How many of us punish our bodies for not serving us better, for not keeping us safe? How many of us engage in negative self-talk, self-harm, substance abuse, or disordered eating? How many believe we're not good enough because we believe our bodies aren't good enough. To build a better relationship with your body, get curious about what lies at the root of your struggle. Ask yourself what you need to feel safe in your body. Address that first on a purely somatic level, meaning work directly with the sensations you experience in your body. Identify where you feel discomfort and breathe or move through the discomfort. When you feel more centered, then you can engage the mind by asking yourself, what would be different if my body were different? This can help you identify what you're really craving, be it love, acceptance, approval, success, or what have you. When you identify the deeper desire, you can address the wounding that contributes to that craving. Consider if the things you dislike about your body are things you actually dislike or things you fear others may not like due to cultural standards. Try to see yourself objectively without looking through the lens of someone else's ideals. Notice what you do like, what you feel proud of, what you're capable of, how your body serves you in a positive way. Practice breath work or mindfulness. Engage in gentle movement or get active. Find some way to enjoy your body and the sensations it offers you. I also suggest taking a break from social media or any other media that encourages comparisons. Make an effort to notice when you're comparing yourself to others and to consciously stop. Find ways to connect instead. Brain function also influences how we understand ourselves, how intelligent we are, how good our memory is, how well we focus, how we process information with our minds. A neurodivergent brain is one that develops or processes atypically. This umbrella term refers to a variety of conditions, including autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, Down syndrome, certain mental health conditions, and other differences, which I believe includes certain intuitive, prescient, or clairvoyant capabilities as well. Again, how these conditions fit within the larger society affects the narrative that's internalized. People with neurodivergent brains are often misunderstood, belittled, or unfairly critiqued. 
They may struggle to meet expectations that aren't realistic or appropriate for them, and then are often made to feel as though they're flawed, dysfunctional, or even bad because of it. There often isn't enough information or enough available resources to support their ability to thrive. All of this can have a profound impact on identity and self-esteem. If your brain functions differently, consider how that affects your origin story. How did it affect you as a child? What beliefs about yourself formed at that time as a result of having a brain that isn't like everyone else's? Identify the beliefs that need to be reworked or released and bring any associated wounds to the surface for healing. We all want to be seen and understood. We want to be accepted and loved. We start out by seeking these things externally, and we often learn pretty quickly that doing so doesn't always help. In fact, sometimes we find outside of what we find outside of ourselves is deeply hurtful. So it makes sense to witness ourselves honestly, courageously, and with love. I'd like to suggest an activity that can help build your capacity for this honest witnessing. It sounds simple, but it's actually quite challenging. The activity I'm suggesting is mirror gazing. This is not about vanity, but about self-reflection. It's a mindfulness practice that expands self-awareness. Forcing yourself to gaze at your own image helps you to see past the surface. It reveals a deeper truth. It also builds a positive relationship with yourself. You're carving time out of your schedule to give yourself your own undivided attention. Take a moment when you can be uninterrupted. Start with a simple grounding practice. Take a few deep breaths and gently come into your body and into the moment. Sit down comfortably in front of a mirror and look at your reflection. Your inner critic will show up to evaluate your appearance, to disparage something it sees, to criticize you for even doing this activity, allow whatever shows up to be there. Imagine you're listening to a recording, notice what you hear, but don't internalize it. Be curious about what you hear. What part of yourself is it coming from? How does that part feel? What does that part fear? What does it want? Witness that part with love and compassion. Let it know you see it and want to help. You may notice multiple voices, different aspects of self that criticize different things. Be curious and compassionate towards each one. Notice your facial expressions as your mind processes your thoughts. Notice the thoughts that arise if your mind wanders. This is simply an exercise in witnessing. Do this for about 5 to 10 minutes. Try to push past your comfort zone, but be aware of your window of tolerance. If it gets too overwhelming or intense, stop and come back to it another time. Close the practice with a gesture. Give yourself a wink, a high five, or say the words I love you or thank you to your reflection. If you give this exercise a try, I'd love to hear what your experience is like. Please let me know. All right, well, that's a wrap on season one. This first season was really about laying a foundation. 
While I'm fascinated by so many things and look forward to going deeper and expanding the focus of the podcast, I felt it necessary to begin here at the beginning of one's understanding of self. It's easy to bypass real work by getting analytical or losing oneself in metaphysical musings. I don't want that for my audience. I want all of us to witness, understand, and love ourselves, which requires reflecting on our stories. I hope some of what I went over during this first season got you thinking about your own life experience and identifying or questioning some of the beliefs you've held since childhood. Season one was really all about excavating the inner child. As kids, we have no idea what's really going on. We're just along for the ride. We were along for the ride we were put on by adults, and sometimes the ride is scary or crazy, sad or just really, really strange. All of us carry wounds, many of which we've been carrying so long we don't even know we're carrying them. Yet we feel the weight. We wonder why things get so heavy. I created a self-directed program titled Reparenting Yourself, A New Approach to Healing Old Wounds. Similar to this podcast, when I thought about courses I'd like to offer, it made sense to start at the beginning with inner child healing. What we experience as children subsequently affects every aspect of our lives. People are often eager to move on from the past, especially if it was difficult. But unless you do the work to heal wounds inflicted in childhood, they will be triggered later on, usually unconsciously. We don't fully understand the wounds we carry until we dive deeper into the psyche, into the subconscious, which requires journeying into the past and confronting feelings and experiences you may prefer to avoid. It was important to me to simplify this endeavor as much as possible. Reparenting yourself is a wade into the kiddie pool of the psyche rather than a push into the deep end. It's a brief program intended to get you thinking and exploring without being overwhelming. I included helpful resources like guided visualization and creative activities, so doing the work may even be enjoyable. You've got to do it, though. You can't just purchase a program then expect it to make an impact if you don't invest your time and energy into it. I recommend you take what you discover to your therapist and go deeper. If you want to find out more about this offer, visit my website at firebirdcreative.me and navigate to Reparenting Yourself from the Offerings tab. The five phases of healing presented in Reparenting Yourself are a reflection of my own process over the course of my lifetime. I did not enjoy my childhood. For a long time, I held a lot of anger, resentment, and sorrow, along with a core belief in my inherent worthlessness. Like I said at the beginning of this season, for most of my life I aligned with a sad origin story, which caused me to identify as victimized and disempowered well into adulthood. I believed that I had shitty luck, or that I had to work harder than other people to achieve less, I believed I was destined to struggle financially, emotionally, relationally, and that in order to be safe, I had to either fight to be loved or refuse to be loved altogether. I believed I was weird, 
alone, and unlovable. All of these beliefs were created by a child's mind, yet I held them far beyond that. There are parts of me that still default to those toxic narratives. Thankfully, I can recognize when those parts are triggered and work with them. My process has helped me develop more appropriate perspectives that support me in being a wise, creative, and empowered adult. My deep and sincere hope is that the program helps you heal your inner child so you can understand yourself more appropriately too. If you'd like to go even deeper by working one-on-one with me, I offer virtual and in-person counseling services to people in North Carolina. I also offer shadow coaching services virtually to people in other areas. If you're curious, you can schedule a complimentary consultation for more information. For those local to the Asheville area, I also offer forest bathing and intuitive art making sessions. Visit my website, again that's at firebirdcreative.me, for details including how to contact me. Okay, so that was season one. As you reflect on the topics covered, consider this. How would you finish a sentence beginning with the words, I am? I am, would you say your name, your ethnicity, your gender, your profession? Consider if your answer reflects a piece of identity formed in childhood or later. In season two, we'll get into the hero's journey. We'll explore the concept of ego, and I'll offer information about various approaches to mental health and emotional wellness, including some conversations with practitioners doing some powerful work in the field. Season two kicks off in the new year on January 2nd. Please join me then. In the meantime, happy holidays to everyone. Happy New Year. Blessings and love to everyone listening. Uh, May you move gracefully and joyfully into 2024. Be well. Thank you for listening to Blue Hour. To find out more about me, Adina Arden Cooper, and my work, visit my website at firebirdcreative.me. You can also follow me on Instagram at fire.bird.creative. If you liked this episode, please share it. And if you like this podcast, please review and subscribe. Join me for the next episode. Until then, I'll leave you with the words of Rumi, famed 13th century Persian poet, scholar, and mystic. Wherever you are, and whatever you do, be in love.